So we're in this series, it's called Follower, and it's really all about the Sermon on the Mount. So if you didn't know, Sermon on the Mounts, the book of Matthew, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and we're just spending some time in it. And look, the longer I'm a pastor over the years, I have a pretty significant interest in how our faith evolves over time. You know, it moves from this place to that place. And this is not unique to me, or it's not unique to you. Follow Jesus long enough and your faith will change or evolve or shift. And I bet you could even ponder or think about some of the ways your own faith has changed or evolved. You used to have a conviction about something, and then you decided that uh, for whatever reason, over time, that it's not near as important, and that kind of faded away, and your faith shifted a bit. Or maybe you didn't know something was important, and you read a scripture, and you thought, I didn't know it was a big deal. God seems to talk about it a lot. And so you decided, I'm going to build that into my value system, or your faith has changed and shifted. And for those of you that are 30, 40, or above, you know, my guess is that's a lot. But this is happening, of course, all over the cultural map of Christianity. It's happening significantly right now, and I believe it's happening more thoroughly and more widespread than ever before. There is a, a sort of cataclysmic or, you know, significant, seismographic, whatever you want to say to characterize the largeness of it, shift that's happening in Christian faith. And it may not be happening for you, but it's probably happening for somebody you know or somebody that's in your family. There's a, a word that we are giving to this right now, and this is the cultural word that describes it, it's deconstruction. If you haven't heard this yet, it's a great word. I mean, it's not a made-up word. It's a real word. But this word is being used to describe people who have an evolving faith and are asking questions about what matters most and what do I hang on to and, and what do I set aside? What do I just let go of? And, and of course, this is not a surprise that this happens. First of all, faith just evolves. Doesn't matter what season you grew up in, faith changes over time. But of course, of course, this is going to happen during a, a pandemic or, you know, a season where, you know, all of us are asking this about not just faith, but everything, you know, I mean, everything's changing and find yourself asking questions about the world at large and everybody is asking the question, well, what do I hang on to? What do I let go of? What relationships am I going to keep pouring energy and time into? And which ones do I think? I don't know. We'll just let that go. You know, what habits going into the office? We've decided is not important, and introverts are like, this is the best thing ever. This is amazing. I love this. I would love to just kind of just work from home, and your employer's got to figure it out. Are you still going to be productive at home? They don't have to pay for your office. Extroverts are dying on the vine. They're like, I need to be around people. And so deconstruction is happening in every area of our life. We're all asking questions about what keeps, what goes. What am I going to retain? What am I going to let go of? And this disruption or deconstruction is good because we're asking new questions. And I love it because those questions are clarifying for every one of us. Because we look at our faith, now we're going to zero in on that one aspect of deconstruction, and we ponder our faith and, and we, we kind of think this, this is the statement I've kind of zeroed in on, I, I think we can do better. I, th I think this, this could be a lot better. I'm not sure why it's going this way, but I, I know that we can do better. When Don and I bought um, the house that we live in now, 
Uh, we saw the house and we loved it. We loved the lot. And there were some things about it we just loved. Good, good bones, as they say, right? I mean, we liked the structure of it. But there were some bones that we didn't like in the inside. And so we decided it need, needed to change. But of course, we couldn't do that until we owned it. Uh, thankfully, that's how the law works. And so, so we bought the house and then we went to work. We started changing it. And we didn't call it deconstruction. We called it demolition. And our oldest son said, you know, he lived with us at the time. He said, can I help with that? Because, you know, he's a boy and likes to tear things up. And so we said, absolutely. So we, me and him got at it. There's a wall, actually about six walls that needed to leave our house and need to be gone. And so we could have taken them out, you know, sort of, you know, nail by nail, drywall screw by drywall screw. But, you know, what fun is that? It takes forever. So we got a sledgehammer and a sawzall and we went after it. I mean, we were safe, you know, goggles and the whole bit. Uh, but Austin, our old son, he begins taking this saws all through the wall and we just love what's happening. You know, I mean, he's noisy and dust and we're going to get some serious deconstruction here. And he's just cutting through the wall and then the lights went out. <laughs> and so we said, you know what, maybe we ought to slow down just a little bit, just, just slow down just a bit. We're not sure. So let's just take stock of things. This, this moment of deconstruction that's happening is, I believe, honoring to who God is. Our culture is asking questions. If you're going through a bit of deconstruction in your faith, I believe God is in it. And if you're not, then, well, life is going to happen eventually, and God's going to take your fingers that are wrapped around some of your beliefs so tightly, and he's just going to begin to peel them away one by one until you're ready to be more open-handed with him. And the reason he's going to do that is because this is what it's like to follow Jesus, to be a follower. Jesus says, look, we're here, we're going there. That's where we're going. And it's a different place than where you're at right now. And you're going to need different things, different tools, different convictions. And you're going to evolve. And that evolving is going to include some deconstruction. Some stuff's got to go. And some stuff that you didn't have before, you got to put that in the bag. Because we have somewhere to go. We're here. And Jesus is going to take us somewhere else. And that's what he has done since the beginning of his ministry. Look, when, when John the disciple describes how he began to follow Jesus, when he tells his story... He tells it a little different than the other guys in the other Gospels. Um, this is how John the disciple tells it. Okay? Now, you've got to remember there's a couple Johns. That, you know, there's John the Baptist, but then there's John, the author of this Gospel, or John the Beloved, as he would say, I am the disciple that Jesus loves. Um, and so the next day, John, John the Baptist, was there again with two of his disciples. And when he saw Jesus passing by, John the Baptist said, look, the Lamb of God. He sees Jesus, and he points to him, and he says, look, this is the one I've been telling you about. This is the one that is to come all my life, John the Baptist would say, is to lay a foundation for what Jesus is about to do. Now, you may not have known this, that some of the disciples of John the Baptist eventually became disciples of Jesus. Before Jesus began his ministry, they hung around John the Baptist as much as they could. John the Baptist was down by the river baptizing people. He had a whole ministry, and he told people some very specific things about how they were living, and, and some of Jesus' disciples heard what John said and liked it, and they hung around the river and listened to him preach. 
One of those was John, the disciple, the eventual John, the author of this gospel. Why would he do that? Well, he knew that he was here and God was taking him somewhere else. And he resonated with John the Baptist. And eventually, John the Baptist said, oh, wait, 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 you know, I, I came to be a forerunner, to, to be laying the foundation for Jesus, and look, there he is. And so John and another disciple, there were two of them, two disciples heard him say this, they, what'd they do? Say it with me. They followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following, and Jesus asked them, in fact, say this with me too, what do you want? It's a great question. Jesus has such great questions. When you read the Gospels, it's pretty clear that Jesus asks more questions than he gives answers. That ought to give you a pause. That ought to make you think, what's up with the questions? I mean, the answers are great. You, you need answers. Answers, we all want answers. But if you have the wrong answer, it's because that you were probably wrestling with the wrong question. And what Jesus does is he asks the right questions. What is it that you want? And so they look at Jesus and say, well, they said... What they call him? So when they say this, they aren't just saying you are somebody's teacher. They're saying you're our teacher. You're my, my rabbi. I'll call you rabbi. It's like when, uh, I don't know, you say to your dad, hey, dad. You know, you don't say, hey, somebody's dad. You say, hey, dad. It's the same idea. Rabbi, you're my teacher. And they ask him a question. It's one of the first times that Jesus gets asked a question in response to a question where are you staying? What are they wondering? Where are you going? Because we're going with you. We're going to follow you. Little different than the other gospel stories. I think both are true. And then Jesus just says this, come and you will see. It's a great, it's just great when Jesus says this. Where are you going? Well, he could have told them, Right? I mean, because you said, here's the address, you know, we're going to Martha's house. Have you had what she cooks? I mean, she's amazing. This is great. You're going to love it. He didn't do any of that. He just said, come on, you'll see. What's he saying? Just, just follow me. That's it. You're here. We're going there. Here's long for the journey. Just come on. But I don't know where, we're, right, you don't. Just, you see that footstep, follow it. And then the next one, and then the next one. That's what we're going to do here and then there, just follow me. And throughout his ministry, it's as almost Jesus knew that, look, listen, fellas, we're going to go through some deconstruction. There's some things you think about God that aren't really true. There's some things that you believe that don't really belong, and you're going to have to get rid of those things. I'm going to tell you what to replace it with, and here's the deal. I, I just think we can do better. I think we can do better. So if you're going through a little bit of that, you can give it a name. doesn't matter to me what you call it. But it's this process where Jesus is saying to you, look, I, I know what you grew up believing. Uh, I think we can do better. I, I know where your values are. And, you know, that's a great start. I, mean, I love you. You've been made in my image. But we can do better. We're moving someplace. This isn't the voice of your perfectionist inside. That's not what that is. This is the voice of Jesus beckoning you to a deeper, more full, more rich life. When Jesus says, I came that you may have life and have it abundantly or overflowing, this is what he means. I, we, we can do better. 
And so if you're going through deconstruction, you should be encouraged because that's what the following Jesus is all about. And if you're not, then it's probably because you're clinging a bit tightly to some things that maybe Jesus is about to pry your fingers away from. If you're going to cling to anything, let it be Jesus. If you're going to go through anything that looks or smells or acts like deconstruction, cling to him and his words and what he says, which is why the Sermon on the Mount is so important. So when we started, we start with these Beatitudes when Jesus said, look, here's the deal about the people that are around you. You think that God has graded people on a spiritual class, that the ones that look most holy are the most holy or, or the ones who, who do the things that are very obvious to other people that clearly religious people would do, that they are more important. And Jesus says, that's not true at all. You gotta unlearn all that, deconstruct every bit of it. Why? Why? Because Jesus says, well, the ones who are already blessed, the ones who are already in, who already have God's approval, this is all last week, just a review, are the poor in spirit and those who mourn and the meek. Those who feel like God is against them or those who feel like God isn't blessing them, they're already blessed. Those who turn the other cheek and allow people to just walk all over and be the doormat, and he's going to say more about that, it's very involved, they're already blessed. And so Jesus says, if you want to see with kingdom eyes, then you will look around your neighborhood, your family, your workplaces, and you will find people who are just impoverished with God. They don't even know, couldn't even spell God, whatever. They have nothing in that pocket. People who mourn and the meek, and you will include them. Do you mean tell them all about God? and how? No, 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 you all, they're already included, Jesus says. That doesn't mean you don't tell them. It just means that they are already included, Jesus says. And if you see it for what it is, then the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount begins, especially if you grew up in church, to deconstruct all kinds of things that you were sure about. And Jesus says, we're off to a good start. And then he says this. In fact, let's just read the whole verse together. Okay, this is the very next beatitude. Start with me now. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And you'll find this, Matthew 5, 6, in the order of the Beatitudes. And it's at this moment in the Beatitudes that Jesus begins to take a turn. And he's going to change kind of how he's describing and what he's describing. The first three, I believe, are this movement of this, these people are already in. You didn't know it, but they are. And if you're one of them, you're already in. You're a part of being blessed by God. And now Jesus is going to, at least for one and probably a few others that are left in the list, give us a state that we should desire or that if we do desire it, it's unearthing something that is very God-like. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Now, when I read scripture, just for me and even for study, or I'm trying to, you know, just draw near to God, I usually start with the NIV. That's what this is. This is the New International Version. And some of you are very familiar with it, and and it could be the version that you're used to reading. And if you are, then you might know that there used to be a different NIV, and it was translated in 1985, and then they retranslated it again, and Zondervan wouldn't even begin to let you know that necessarily unless you're a Bible geek, because 
Well, Bible translation is a very lucrative and involved business. And if you don't know it's a business, it's kind of the underbelly of the Christian world. It's, it's an involved place. And Zonovan makes a, oh my goodness, I can't even imagine how much money off of the NIV translation. It's kind of an important product for them. So they just call it not the new NIV because you wouldn't want that because you, you grew up reading the NIV. They want to just call it the NIV and that's what they did. All that to say, translations really matter. So I start with the NIV. It's where I start. And I begin to read this. And then I go to a couple other translations. And the reason I do that is because some translations are more word-for-word translations. That's what the NIV is. But we're translating from our language, which is... Say it with me, English. Okay, very good. Uh, to into our, our language, English, from the Greek language. And it's a very, very different language. It's structured different. The words mean different things. They, it, it's just a completely different culture. All kinds of things make that a very arduous and painful, difficult scholarly process. So I start with the NIV, word for word. But then usually I go to the NLT, which is the New Living Translation. Uh, some of you grew up reading the Living Bible. Well, the Living Bible you know, grew up and became the New Living Translation. That's what it is today. And it's a more thought-for-thought thought translation. It's a little bit different, but you get some nuances. So several weeks ago, I began pouring through the Beatitudes, pondering, considering, reading, praying, reflecting. And I read this in the NIV, but then, of course, I did what I normally do, and I dialed up the NLT, and this is what I read. Bless, God blesses those who hunger and thirst for what? For they will be what? I mean, there's a, several things about this that are almost exactly the same. God blesses and hunger and thirst. That's very, very good. And then I got to this word and it stopped me in my tracks. I thought, what in the world? This is just a different word altogether. How did that, who in the world, what part of the committee translating this is all done by committees except for the message. It's a one person deal. But this, this translation, I thought, who, who, who just threw this word in there? I mean, this is the Bible. You open up the Bible, especially if the letters are read, you want to see what it says. And, and this is very, very different. I mean, even satisfied is a little different than filled, isn't it? I mean, sometimes I'm filled and I am what? Not satisfied. And so I keep filling. As Josh would say, I have a big feed. That's the Canadian way of saying you ate too much, right? And so... This is very, very different, and I don't know what to do with it. Now, I grew up in a Christian setting that much more resonated with this translation of the verse. What it means to hunger and thirst, the Beatitudes make it very clear. The thing you and I ought to be hungering and thirsting for is righteousness. And I was taught, and maybe you were too, in fact, all of Christendom is mostly taught this, that I'm hungering and thirsting for righteousness, which is probably another way to say it, personal holiness, right? I mean, I know what righteousness is. It's when I do right things and I do them for the sake of knowing God. And personal holiness is, is the sum total of that. Now, I know scripture defines righteousness as being just justified and right before God. And Jesus does that for me. But he also tells me to hunger and thirst for righteousness. And so in the youth group I was in, the church I grew up in, this was the pursuit. This was the goal. And so there was an awful lot of discussion about things you should do 
and things you shouldn't do. And what that looks like and which is on which list and how you know whether or not you hunger and thirst for righteousness. How many of you grew up in a church where that would have been a normal discourse of discussion about what this might mean? Let me see your hands. Okay, yep, me too. Most of Christendom is like that. Created some problems for me because when it came to living in a righteous way, I wasn't very good at it. I enjoyed and liked doing things that were not very righteous. And on top of that, hungering and thirsting for righteousness felt like a, well, a hurdle too big to climb. I mean, I could knuckle down, bear down, you know, just kind of push through and do the right thing if needed. But wanting to do the right thing, that's very different. And there wasn't very much of me that wanted to do right and good things. Now, you know, what, the big, the big three that we, most of us never do? I mean, I never did those things, whatever you thought of. We'll just... <laughs> We'll just call it that, okay? We'll just assume we have the same three, although you know we don't. But righteousness, hungering and thirsting for it? I don't think so. I didn't. And then I read a different translation. God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice. It's very, very different. So which is it? And what does it mean? So in the Greek, there's one word in that spot. One word. And when you understand this word more thoroughly, more deeply, which we will next week, but when you begin to pick it apart and dig at it, probably the best translation would be the one I created. I know, it's very pompous of me to say it. <laughs> But all I did is I took the NLT and combined it with the NIV. God blesses those who hunger and thirst, say it with me, for righteousness and justice, for they will be filled and satisfied. And I named my new translation, well, NIV and NLT, you can see it right there. That's what I named it. This this is what is meant by that word. See, most of Christian culture would say that righteousness or your pursuit of personal holiness is the very thing that Jesus was talking about. But when you understand the Jewish nature of this and even the early Christian understanding of the word that fills this space, well, nobody would even dare combine the idea of personal holiness without including the idea of communal justice. They are one in the same. In fact, to pursue one without the other would mean that you understand about half of who God is, his very nature and his very character. The depth of this significance is lost on most of us who follow Jesus or have for decades because most of us grew up in a setting where righteousness in this beatitude and even most of the New Testament, it's the same word in fact, was viewed really solely as you not doing things that the Bible says you shouldn't do. That's it. 
And that would be about half of the truth. And do you know where half of the truth gets you? Well, it's a lie. It's a lie. The understanding is this, that we would pursue righteousness, personal holiness. That's all part of the the word. But that it cannot be divorced from or separated or extricated from communal justice, meaning my concern for justice for you. This is a really big deal. And it comprises, in fact, I don't know, if you grew up in a church like this, this will surprise you, the vast majority of Scripture. So we've asked that you engage in some questions as we go through this. And the reason why we've asked you to do that, and we've even given you the question, I mean, we're, we're spoon-feeding you, really. The, the reason why we've done that is because we're convinced, I'm convinced, that we don't know how to talk about faith for the most part. We don't know how to have discussions. Now, some of you are very, very good at it and adept at it, and so the question is just a jumping-off point for you. But for some of us, having the conversation is hard. So we're, we're giving you a question to throw out in the middle of a, a lunch table or in between two people that are thinking about their life. And if you'll do that, I mean, you'll fumble through it just like I would, but you'll end up, you know, you're here right now, you'll end up somewhere else. And it will be good. God will work in it. Here's the question for you this week, okay? Where do you see injustice in our world, in our culture, in our community? It is such an important question. I can't even begin to tell you how important the question is. Where do you see injustice in our world, in our culture, in our community? You know what it was like when you got your last vehicle, your last car that you bought? You, you remember what that was like? You, you, uh, you bought a Chevy or a VW or you know, a Toyota or whatever you bought. And you bought a, you know, whatever maker model you bought. And you bought one, and then you began to drive around town. You thought, oh, they have one. And the neighbor's got one. Everybody's got a car just like mine. And you know better than to think that the day you bought yours, everybody bought one just like yours. But you began to see them. Why? Well, you had eyes to see them. This is how this question will work for you. Now, look, I, I don't care where you see the injustice. It doesn't, that's not even important to me. But if you see this question and your instinct is to say, I don't know, then it is so important that you wrestle with it. Because as soon as you begin to ask this question and then hear somebody else's answer and you have your answer and you will begin to see it just like that new vehicle you bought everywhere. Because it is everywhere. It is everywhere. And if you need some help kind of knowing where to hunt for it, here's a couple of tips for you, okay? Pay attention to hierarchy, power structures, and who's in charge and who's not in charge. Just pay attention to that. You'll begin to see some things. If you need a little more help, follow the money. Always. Follow the money. And you'll begin to see it in places there too. Injustice is always connect to power structures and the flow of finances. Always. My idea? Oh no, no, no. You'll see where it comes from in scripture over and over again. But ask this question. Here's a warning, okay? 
here's just a warning. If you're going to engage in this and have the question and engage in the discussion, here's, here's the warning for you, okay? And you'll see this is true in our culture at every turn. Don't miss it. Fight for your own rights and you will gather an army. Fight for injustice on behalf of others and all of hell will come against you. You've been warned. And Jesus warned you too in the rest of the Beatitudes. You know it. He says, blessed are you when you are persecuted for, do you remember what he says? Righteousness sake. It's the same word. When you are persecuted because you pursue justice. Ask the question. Wrestle with it. And watch what God does to the sensitivity of your heart. Look, God came after you when you didn't know better, when you didn't have the answers, when nobody else was giving you a second look. His love pursued you when we least deserved it. In fact, Paul would say it this way. While we were yet, what? He loved us. And so there are some among us that are poor in spirit, that are mourning, that are meek, that live and suffer under innumerable injustices. Some of them are in your workplace. Some, some of them are your neighbors. Some are in your family. Some are your friends. So where is the injustice? God, may you show us in our hearts. Let me guide you through a prayer, okay? Why don't you bow your heads, close your eyes, and then Josh, after this prayer, is going to lead us through a song that will encourage us and remind us that even in the middle of difficulty and struggle, that God is with us. So Lord, we ask that as we look with kingdom glasses out to the culture that is among us, that you would show us injustice. Just let us see it the way you see it, Lord. We want your eyes, your heart. Lord, just, just strip away the issues of, of politics for the moment, the issues of uh, hot topics right now in our culture. That, that's, not, that's not what we're concerned about. What we want is to understand what Jesus told us we are to hunger and thirst for. And most of us who have been followers for a while now, Lord, we understand to hunger and thirst for personal holiness. But justice has escaped our view. Not for all of us, just for some of us. So Lord, help us to see it the way you see it. Help us to hunger and thirst for justice. And I would imagine that every one of us in this room, Lord, listening online would pursue it in a different way. That's, that's not the question for this, this week or even this day. Lord, help us to see what you see with your eyes. And as we go about the business of building our faith, we recognize that for some of us, it requires a little deconstruction. So, Lord, whether we need a sawzall or a, 
a more delicate instrument, help us to engage in the business of asking what matters most, refining our values, and seeking you, you first, you alone. Lord, if we're going to cling to anything, may we cling to Jesus. This is what we hope and pray for. May we cling to your son.